Is surfing the most addictive sport? How did surfing help a rider with a substance use disorder enter into recovery? What activities can be a form of therapy for you? Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab, and a show where we explore the question how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Thad Zilikowski. He is a lifelong surfer, person in recovery, and the author of The Drop. How the most addictive sport can help us understand addiction and recovery. He also has a memoir called On a Wave that was a finalist for the Penn Martha Albrand Award in 2003. His novel Wichita appeared in 2012 to critical acclaim. Dad's essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, Slate, Book Forum, Art Forum, Travel and Leisure, Interview Magazine, and Index. He is the recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship and has a PhD in English literature from Yale University. I'm a huge fan of that and absolutely love his memoir. His writing's so beautiful, and many themes resonated with me. Thad and I do nerd out about surfing and go down the rabbit hole of surfing life, but the themes we discuss have a broader reach. You don't need to be a surfer to enjoy our conversation. Design Lab has a newsletter. If you don't subscribe, please do find the link in the podcast show notes. Every week, we'll deliver cool stuff for you to read about design and health. Remember to rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We have a five-star rating on both those platforms. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is how you support the show, and we really appreciate everyone who has done so. And tell a friend about Design Lab. Now, here's my conversation with Dad Zilikowski. You know, you write about very personal stuff in your book, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you feel comfortable talking about that stuff. So whatever oh, yeah, you feel, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay. I I feel talk. I feel totally comfortable talking about it. I, you know, it was in a way, it was kind of a confession that book, and one of the things that occurred to that I'm all, almost like I didn't allow myself to to acknowledge it as I was writing it, which was that I was coming out as an addict, and I had never really done that. I do when I, my sobriety is not connected to AA, it's not connected to rehab, it's not connected to anything. I'm on my own, right? And it's a little bit oddball in that way. So it's been very private, my struggle. And the book, you know, it's typical kind of thing where a writer, because, you know, as a, you've written book, you know, you know how there's a kind of, there's just this sort of isolado quality to writing and to the personalities of writers are fairly, you know, hermit-like. I loved COVID in that way. I absolutely <laughs> came into my own. I was like, let it last for forever. <laughs> I know and, other writers who have said that COVID was great for them. Yeah, I finished the book during COVID. I kind of converted my garage to an office. And so... Yeah. And so, but coming out as an addict in that way was definitely hard, but I'm over it now. And it was helpful to me psychologically just to Mm -hmm. kind of get over that stigma, like to kind of really deal with the fact that that's a feature of my biography, Mm -hmm. my life. And yeah, and connecting surfing to it and, and writing about drugs and addiction and surfing was just a dream for me. I was like, what do I know better? What do I feel more strongly about? Nothing. You know, it's like, yeah, I have no. So in a way, I felt like I could just go on and on in that vein. 
But the book itself was, as you know, a bit of an odd hybrid of a book. And that was also kind of cool for me because I had grown up reading books like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance mm. and The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway, which is kind of an, a lesser known book from the 70s. Yeah, so I, I knew kind of what I wanted to do in that regard. And you know, read, reading your book was, I felt like I was heard for the first time with some of the experiences I was having. So it was like therapy for me. So thank, oh, thank you for writing oh, this. Of yeah, I can imagine you relating particularly to that uh, chapter where I'm on seeing the surf on my phone on the train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, you're able to articulate certain like emotions, experiences that I could not put into words. Uh, so I appreciate that. I just devoured your book. Thank you. Well, there's another one you can read if you like that one. It's a little more PG. It's called On a Wave. On a Wave. It's on my list. Yeah. That one was kind of how I wrote my way out of being a sort of really isolated kind of avant-garde poet and wrote my way into narrative through memoir. Mm. That whole transition was tricky, hard. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your book. It's called the drop, how the most addictive sport can help us understand addiction and recovery. Mm -hmm. I think for some people who have never surfed or don't know much about surfing, that might seem like a overreaching description of surfing. Like, How would you explain to them why it's the most addictive sport? Surfing can, can make a claim to being the most addictive sport because it has elements of very profound connections to nature, to kind of very powerful neurochemicals, and to a sort of tribal identity. Hmm. Those things are really go way back into our ancestral past. You know, we come from ancestors who spent most of their time in nature. So we're happiest in nature. This is the concept of biophilia. I touch on a bit. We are happiest and most at home among myriad other species. And that's what the ocean does for me personally, is it reconnects me to nature. And, and so there I am out in the water. That's a huge thing right there. The ocean is the kind of mother of all wildernesses. But to be in the wilderness, period, is really important as a kind of grounding experience and as a, something that helped to me uh, overcome my addictions. And then the other aspect of it is just the free ride aspect of surfing. You catch this moving band of energy and you mm. ride it. And there's a kind of transmission of the earth energy and the oceanic energy into your body through that. And I think you gain a sort of magic energy from waves, from staying on a wave and riding it like a, a horse or something like a wild horse. Mm -hmm. So that's the other aspect of it that really appeals to the sort of adrenaline junkie types, uh, people attracted to thrills. That's me. <laughs> yeah. I, I can tell because you work in emergency room, but not immediately you're, you've got that profile. I don't know that that was really characteristic of me before I surfed, like as a boy and I started surfing when I was nine or 10, but I, 
I became more of an adrenaline junkie because of surfing. It conditioned me to orientation towards thrills and an unapologetic sort of, of course, you know, there's nothing better in life than that feeling and of chasing it without apologies, you know? Mm. So that's the other aspect of the sort of neurochemical and the neuroplastic, the impact on, on one's brain, I think is really profound, especially if you start as a child. And then the the last thing is just the connection to a tribe. Like I feel having grown up as a surfer that for better or worse, right? And there are some really Neanderthal surfers and there are some really problematic localism. There are all sorts of social ills that surfing expresses. But in general, I feel that is my tribe. I feel at my best socially when I'm surfing, <laughs> when I'm in the water especially as I've gotten older and I feel this sort of just, I don't know, like a connection to my past through it. Yeah. And to these other guys who are out there, I'm often really way older than everyone else now by a decade or two or three. But sometimes that's not the true, you know, it depends on the day. Like the other day on that big day, I would, there was no one near my age out there. You know, everyone was in their twenties and thirties. Oh, there was, uh, yeah, we're referring to on two last Tuesday, there was a huge swell that rolled into Jersey, like head and a half overhead waves. And yeah, everyone in the water was much younger than us. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of an interesting reverse tumbling, right? Because when you first start to surf, you think, okay, I've managed to transition out of this rather embarrassing, even humiliating apprentice stage of being a kook. And now I'm a real, I'm a bona fide surfer. And that's just, that's the way it's, you're an OG, you know, it's going to be that way forever. But what happens if you stay with it long enough is that you start to kind of go arc slowly back toward being a kook again, just because of the, you know, breakdown of reflexes and core strength and all sorts of things. And a lot of guys drop out. And I am of the kind of Laird Hamilton school, which is, which is taking pleasure in attrition, the war of attrition, being the last, you know, old dude out there. <laughs> That's how I feel. That's a victory. (laughs) That's a victory. You have to kind of savor that, just the sort of longevity of being a surfer into your 50s and 60s. Like I'm in my early 60s now. So yeah, that's my case for surfing as the most addictive sport. It's, you know, you can make part of those claims for other things, but like, for instance, the next best thing for me would be what? I don't know. Like it's hard to come up with a second, but everything seems rather wan and sort of pale compared to surfing. I think another sport like that would do would be really immersive and similar would be like spearfishing, like mm. hunting underwater for me is really kind of exciting, even though I don't do it very often. Mm. Now, tell us about this book. The, I'm going to read a quote from the New York Times. It says, the drop isn't really a book about surfing or addiction. It's a paper rectangle of stormy, gorgeous energy. Is that an accurate description of of your book? Well, that's a really lyrical and, um, you know, laudatory thing to say. I I love that remark by the reviewer. I was really delighted with that review. You know, I think that, yeah, I, I don't know if I would feel comfortable making that claim on behalf of the book. I want the book to have a specificity. I do think it's about surfing. It's about addiction. It's about my life. And I do feel also that it can offer a kind of map or a kind of blueprint for other people struggling with just even just malaise, you know, Mm. just depression. It needn't be like a full-blown addiction. I just think that there's a lot of 
alienation from our kind of primal energy that has to do with being too much in built environments, too much in the sort of digital realm. This is, of course, a, a truism of our age that we're oversaturated with digitality and mediation, just everything being mediated. And to mm -hmm. get out in the wilderness and to be surfing, it just breaks the it breaks the circuit of that kind of dopamine, the dopamine schedule, the, the dopamine structuration of experience that has to do with these fiendishly addictive devices we're all surrounded by. Yeah. Every, every time I tweet or post something on Instagram and then there's like a retweet or, or a like, mm -hmm. it's that little bit of rush that mm -hmm. these engineers and these large tech companies are designing to so you could say on that device. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's hard to stay off and they're really well designed and they're di diabolically well designed in that way. So, so for me, like as I was saying, I think I may have said this in the warm up. what I really enjoyed about writing the book was just having tapped into sort of a sense of the deep current of feeling I had. Like I felt very strongly about this addiction and drugs. And, and I also, I had a lot of dark powerful experiences in my addiction to drugs and alcohol. And I also had a lot of very powerful experiences connected to surfing. Surfing is what got me out of my starting to surf again in the mid nineties after 15 years or so of having walked away from it is what reconnected me to my body, reconnected me to a sense of joy. And I, I feel I owe a lot in that regard to surfing. And it was something I felt I could sincerely, I didn't feel the usual sort of haziness about what was true for me. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I realized by writing about surfing, I could write about something with, with a kind of straightforward, unequivocal passion that was just not present in other realms of my life, you know, in terms of subject matter and what I had to say. You know, when you think to yourself, what do I have to say? You know, I mm. felt like that was what, even though for a long time, I felt surfing was too esoteric and too narrow to interest anyone, A, and B, that I'm not even, I wasn't even convinced it could be put into words. Yeah. Like almost like a jazz musician might think, well, this isn't something anyone who's not involved in jazz is going to really get. I can't talk about it. I feel the same way because I, when I read so many books about surfing, I'm like, this is like garbage. You're not capturing, yeah. <laughs> you're not capturing it. And yours was one of the few maybe probably only a second book that I read about surfing that was able to capture, I think, the essence of it. There are a lot of pitfalls in surfing. There's a sentimentality. There's a kind of narrow, a snobbish kind of outs insider-outsider dichotomy that, that crops up really fast. It's, it's tricky to write about. And most movies don't get it right either, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm a physician, and if a patient had a substance use disorder or a alcohol use disorder, I would not prescribe a treatment plan of surfing mm -hmm. to help that person. So what, I'm very curious to know, how did that work for you? How was surfing in some ways the best treatment plan for your substance use and alcohol use disorder? Well, before I started surfing again, the thing that would get me kind of put some pep in my step in New York City, I lived in Manhattan at the time, when I would be hustling down the street 
it would be because my dealer had returned my call and I could go over and buy drugs from him at his apartment. And one day when I started surfing, I was hustling down the street and I, and I had this kind of pep in my step. And I thought, wait, this is the first time you've done this in the city where you're going toward Rockaway with your board. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I hadn't felt that kind of like little boy glee and happiness other than with regard to drugs mm. for a while. And that was very dark. But because I had started surfing again, I, I felt it was something that I just felt intuitively was going to be the way out because it gave me something to get up out of bed for other than calling the dealer. And so personally, I had all this history with surfing. And I was also something I was good at because I had done it so early and for so long. And I competed as a surfer and I really had identified as a full-blown hardcore surfer until I quit to go to college. And when I went back to it, I thought, gosh, you know, you were striving to be this, all these other things in the course of your collegiate life. And as an academic, like you wanted to know Latin and Greek, and you wanted to have gone to a prep school, but you didn't. And you had all these regrets about your childhood. But here's this thing where every maybe like, it's not violin, but like, in a way, this is my violin. This is what I practiced all the time. And I actually had all this muscle memory. And I thought, God, this is what you're best at. <laughs> and it was all still kind of there muscle memory wise. And I could, I was more or less right at the same level I was when I quit. And I thought it just was a good thing for my ego in that regard. Cause you know, when you're addicted, your ego is worn away by self loathing and shame. I, I never expected to be the guy I became as an addict, never. I mean, I was very kind of like, if anything, a little puritanical in high school and I didn't drink much and I ate well, I was fit. And here I became this kind of like creepy, not creepy, but like just unhealthy guy whose orientation was toward this, this substance you know, oriented to willpower or inwardness, which had been my characteristics. So surfing restored some sense of myself as worthy, you know, like here, here's something you can actually do, you know, and it, it precedes all of this kind of cultural turn your, your life took toward books and writing. I love this statement that you wrote for a piece in the Los Angeles Times. You say, quote, I subscribe to the school of thought that we are always held captive in one or another matrix, that it's a question of choosing not freedom, but the most suitable life-affirming bondage. Mm, right, right. Yeah, I mean... What does that mean? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, that sounds kind of bleak in a way, but writing this book deepened my conviction in that respect because, you know, my editor said, you should do something on the brain and all the brain research around addiction. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. I just want to write my story. I don't really necessarily even believe in all of neurology and neurochemistry and all the supposed advances in um, addiction research. But I did it kind of with a gun to my head and I was actually really turned around by it. It changed my perspective on my body and on my consciousness, the relationship of my consciousness to my body, which was felt a lot less autonomous. It felt I realized how much I was a kind of passenger in this 
I mean, even if it's interactive, I still felt much more like a passenger, an occupant of an autonomic system. Hmm. I felt like I was in a matrix called the sort of body-mind, right? And the body-mind had all of these chemicals and laws and things that were happening subconsciously, but for real happening, right? And, and were structuring my experience in a way that I had never acknowledged or known about before. So I came away feeling that the brain research part of the book persuaded me even more that it's not, it wasn't even a humanistic notion of captive, like of social preconceptions. It was more like to the actual body and brain. And that is kind of my perspective on surfing. I don't feel surfing is freeing me. I feel like it's holding me in a kind of matrix that I actually like and is life affirming. It's not as if surfing doesn't have dark aspects of addiction. Yeah. Because it has a huge panoply of great neurochemicals that are very powerful, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, oxytocin, all of this stuff that flows through you when you're surfing or even just thinking about surfing. And, you know, it can be very narrowing for people. It can make them want to do or talk about nothing else. They'll forego college. They'll forego any kind of interesting career. And that's it's hard to look at that and say, oh, you know, gosh, surfing's just unequivocally great. You know, yeah. And I just want to comment on that because that's sometimes in my life, in my, you know, 20 years of surfing, I have felt like it was very dark like that. Mm -hmm. I felt that it was actually too addicting. And when I tried to explain this to people, they kind of thought it was a little bit funny, you know, or they maybe they didn't take me seriously, but I was like, no, it has this powerful hold on mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And I had to stop like for at times where it just, it was too much. I, I just like mm. I had to like step away for a little bit. Mm. Um, yeah. And, interesting. And then I felt that what my addictions had been oscillating between surfing and actually work. So the mm. only thing that was able to replace that was diving into my career at certain times in my life that was able to I think satisfy this longing or craving or I, but the way, just the way that you described it. And it's to me, I was like, Oh, someone understands me. finally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I, the one, the upside of quitting surfing for me when I was a college student was that I felt like a relief Yeah, from the, I felt like there was a continuous pressure I had lived under to be vigilant and to keep my eye on the ocean and for the swell. And forecasting then was nothing. There was no yeah. such thing really. So it was even worse. Even today, it's you still can be very vigilant and not know. Like that Tuesday swell we've mentioned came up out of nowhere, really. Yeah, you it know, did. It, it was only up. like a couple of days of warning. And for, for right. listeners who don't surf on the East Coast, the surf is not consistent. And so when there is good surf, you literally have to drop everything and go surfing. Right. It's very fickle. And it brings up an aspect of the addictiveness of surfing that we should mention, which is, this is another concept that was important in the book, which is intermittent reinforcement. You know, yep. this idea from in behaviorism that the most powerful pattern of reward is not predictive. Like, in other words, if, if I do X, then I'm going to get a pellet or a reward. It's actually, if I do X, sometimes, I don't know when. 
I'll get a reward. And that kind of random reinforcement turned out to be more powerfully holding of animals, including humans. So when you think of surfing as something that is addictive, one component of it is its relationship to the ocean, which is so itself unpredictable. Un totally unpredictable. It's not and like... It's not yeah, like I'm, I'm going to go play tennis at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. That's predictable. You're going to get a court or I mountain bike. But, you know, there's, the trail is going to be there. It's not like one day the trail is not going to be there when I mountain bike. I'm going to be able to go down that trail on my bike. It is yeah. way more predictable. Right, right. And a lot of people don't even go out into the wilderness. It's just like I have a squash you know, match and it's indoors in a completely controlled environment, or I'm going to play basketball with the boys and it's, it, the gym is there and yeah. it's, it's all the conditions are completely predictable. There's been so many days when I used to live in New York city and would drive out to like long beach or far walkway and traffic and it would take like sometimes two hours from long Island city, Queens, and it'd be flat. I'm like, uh -huh. I just like sacrifice my entire day. I go out and it's flat. And I think, why do I do this? The activity in my no. life? Oh, yeah. No, it's very, it can be very perverse feeling. But I think that the relief I felt was also the relief from that vigilance and of uh, just this sort of sense of being liberated from that particular thing, which was so powerful, the hold of surfing on me as a, a boy and as a teenager was so powerful. And there, I, and so I went to college and I was in this kind of, you know, East Coast. You went to college at, was it Yale? I went to college for my PhD at Yale. Before that, I went to George Washington University. Okay. And I was in this kind of Georgetown world and it was just something so wonderful and kind of tame about it to me. It all felt sort of refined and pale and easy but i was still for a long time feeling no regret about having quit surfing surfing seemed to me just this taxing <laughs> preoccupation <laughs> and then it was only when i got kind of addicted to drugs and alcohol that surfing reappeared as a kind of exit from this this dead end that i had this way in which books and culture and cities had not had not been good for me in the whole, you know, mm. this, this commitment to the mind over the body, you know, basically when my sense, my sense of the body when I was in my twenties and early thirties was drugs, you know, mm. like my, my body is for drinking. My body is for doing drugs. What else? Maybe dancing What else, or having sex. What else is the body for? What else is it? But a vehicle for kind of intense pleasure. Mm. And then because I had quit surfing, the surfing wasn't there as an option. It wasn't even there as a kind of, you know, a, a place to point the needle. And, and it was only by writing about it for an article that, that I thought, wait, you know how to do this. You can do this again. It's not over necessarily. Was surfing like this replacement addiction for you? Oh, it was for sure a replacement addiction. Yeah. Yeah, no question about it. And it was almost consciously so, you know, it was like, I knew how powerful a hold it had on me as a, as a younger man. And I knew it would reassert itself such that, you know, there was a day when I was, that when I first started where my younger brother had moved to Kauai and I was standing in this tiny little Manhattan apartment and he was calling me to tell me about it. 
And um, I thought, this guy, he doesn't even surf and he's living in Kauai. What am I doing in Manhattan in this tiny little Tokyo apartment I can barely turn around in? What am I doing? I've got to drop everything and go to Hawaii. <laughs> you know, that was how, and I had to go, I had to kind of dial myself back out of that impulsivity that surfing was. Uh, was. I, dude, I felt the same way. The first time I went to Hawaii and surfed there, <laughs> I said, I'm going to quit my job in academics <laughs> in Philadelphia. Like, I don't care about this. And I actually like looked at hospitals there where I could work at in the emergency rooms. Like, I just want to move to Oahu yeah. and work a couple of shifts in the ER. I was like, forget academics and surf. Like, it was very impulsive. Tell me about that. What kept you from acting on it? I think my wife would have left me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a similar. Like, I know. I, <laughs> like, I had a similar thing. I mean, if I hadn't had a girlfriend, fiance in the background of my pining for Hawaii, I would have done it. I think, you know, I had just gotten this tenure track job. I had, you know, healthcare, I had loans to pay off and, uh, you know, it was completely crazy. And she represented sort of sanity and, um, the clarity, but had I not had that, I would have done it, but you also had a more tempting option because your career could have been transplanted to Hawaii easily. Whereas mine wouldn't have, uh, you can't get a job in academia in Hawaii. Yeah. Not that easily. I couldn't have done it. I was lucky to get one in, in America. So in, you know, in, in writing and in English. Um, but so, yeah, that was, that's a good example of how it can make you want to throw everything over in a bad, maybe in a bad way, maybe not. It's hard to read, hard to know. But I was there in December and all I could think about was how I could change my life to get there, to be there all the time, you know, it just has that. Yeah. I feel the same way every year I, I take a surf trip to a wave filled place. You know, I went to Ecuador this year, I was in Central America, Puerto Rico, Hawaii. And then every time I come back from one of those trips, it, it is almost like I'm going through withdrawal. Mm. Cause I think about like, how can I get back there? And I have like these, crazy impulsive thoughts of like i just need to quit i didn't need to get out of philadelphia and i need to figure out how i could spend more time in that place and, <laughs> and it takes me weeks to recover from that yeah 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 no there's a hangover it's it's very interesting there's a well-known um big wave surfer who is now in his early 50s pete mel who had a wave yeah. of a lifetime in the last year and he's also a former addict he was a crystal meth addict and he had this huge wave, right? It was just so obviously a wave of a lifetime. He, he, he had this enormous barrel and surfed it perfectly and had to isolate himself in a room for two days in the dark to deal with the adrenaline mm. aftermath of it. Because wow. I think he felt very tempted to use again. Mm -hmm. I think he felt emotionally like a little crazy, a little insane from the dump of adrenaline and all those neurochemicals from that wave. And I thought it was really so vivid an example of just the power of surfing and the addictiveness and especially on former addicts. And this guy in this dark room sitting there for two days processing wow. this moment of a lifetime, which was mixed you know i mean in the sense that like i guess i mean this is something i encountered in my research too especially among big wave writers it wasn't so much 
the anticipation or the actual riding of the wave. It was afterward that was hard for these guys mm. because it was coming down off that almost like a rock star who'd played to a stadium of 10,000 people. Imagine, you know, I, I've heard the guy who, what's his name? I've heard a rocker talk about try going to a dinner party after a huge concert and just trying to be normal and talk to people when he had felt like a god for two hours that transportive feeling he had and how difficult it was for him to navigate average social life. And, and I think the same is true for really intense peak experiences. It's hard to integrate them. Now that you're in recovery and you, know, you have a full-time job and you're still actively surfing, how do you balance all, all of those things? Well, it's important for me to have some solitude and write like my sort of like I meditate every day. I work out every day. I try to kind of get my neurochemistry and some good feeling, some good serotonin flowing through my body. I write in my little garage slash cottage slash man cave away from the family, quiet. And then if the surf is rideable, I go surfing once a week, max, mm. you know. My job since COVID has been remote, which is ideal. I never want to go into the city again. I don't want to see anyone again. <laughs> I just want to see them through a screen, except for my family and my local friends. So I, my life has improved dramatically with COVID. And I don't miss any of the real world of commuting to the city on the train, which I did before COVID. That's how I integrate it. A lot of surfing for me is in my imagination. You know, it's in my, it's my muscle memory and my body. And like mm -hmm. thinking about that day on Tuesday and looking at clips and writing about it. And I'm writing in a way, it seems like it's my only subject. I'm writing a, a thriller about surfing set in Hawaii right now. And, um, you know, it's giving me a kind of one remove experiences of surfing. You know, I'll write about surfing in North Shore and I'll get really excited about that and translating that for non-surfers and writing is almost kind of like a form of therapy yeah it's a form of therapy a form of surfing it's i think it's like it's kind of like surfing is like in the sense of like it's a craft i know that i i feel comfortable with and is also but writing for me is a more difficult in, in the sense that i have a uh, like a lot of writers i don't i resist doing it a lot of writers find writing very off-putting and bristly with problems of underachievement, you know? So I have to kind of get myself into a space of just setting a certain number of words I'm going to write. Okay, all right, you write your 300 words, your 500 words today. That's all you're going to do. Mm. You're going to add those to the pile. And if you can do that every day, you'll have X at the end of six months, that, that kind of thing. And I kind of calm myself down and give myself a little goal rather than a big hazy goal and then get through that day. And if I can yeah. do, if I can get my little quantity of words written, then I'll, I'll feel okay mm. about that day. I, oh man, we're running out of time. I have like a thousand more questions. I could speak to you for hours, but I wanna, I wanna let you go back to your day. <laughs> I really appreciate your book and it's such a joy to read. Thanks for coming on the show, Thad. It was great having you. My pleasure, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan Zilikowski. Check out his book, The Drop, How the Most Addictive Sport Can Help Us Understand Addiction and Recovery. 
You can reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Pogisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.